One evening on December 28, 1895, 33 people sat in the basement of a cafe in Paris. They all paid one franc for the honor of being there. Their seats all faced a large white screen. When the lights went down, for a moment a still image of a factory appeared on the screen. The small group seemed disappointed. Then a man in the back began turning a crank on a projection machine. To the group's astonishment, the image they were watching suddenly sprung to life. There were people walking, turning left and turning right. A child ran across the screen. A dog walked on. And then a horse-drawn carriage appeared. The film was less than a minute long, but before the end of the evening, the crowd would be entertained by nine more of these little short slice-of-life films. This was a night that changed the world forever. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. You think they're ridiculous, but they were thought wonderful inventions in their time. Why, dearie me, we used to enjoy the magic lantern. The children used to shriek at the old sleeper swallowing the mouse. And so it isn't really so surprising that when Mr. Lumiere, all honor to him and the other pioneers, showed us the first picture of a railway engine entering a country station, we nearly jumped out of our seats. And, and some people even thought it was going to burst right out of the picture and run over us. Hello there, my name is Jeff Kelly and welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. This is the first Monday of the month and that means a history lesson. Now class... So far, we've talked about Edward Maybridge, Louis Le Prince, and Thomas Edison. Each of these three men took a small step into creating the world of filmmaking. But perhaps one of the biggest steps was done by two brothers from France. When you go to a movie palace and watch a film on the big screen, you can think of August and Louis Lumiere. Now, as I've mentioned before, when it comes to new innovations, there's a tendency for people to want to credit someone as being the first, when in reality, it it isn't like that. Small incremental steps are taken by many people to bring a new device into existence. But because we live in a world where we need to credit one individual, the one who puts the final piece in place usually gets the glory. If you want to know more on the subject, I can recommend James Burke's wonderful TV miniseries, Connections. That's what the whole series was about, how one invention leads to another. Very interesting stuff. But anyway, in the world of film, we know that Thomas Edison was inspired by Edward Maybridge. And we know that the Lumiere brothers were inspired by Edison. On the night of the 28th of December, 1895, at the Salon Indien du Grand Café in Paris, a public screening of ten short films was held. These films were shot and presented by the two brothers from France. While this event is very important to the history of film, it must be noted that it wasn't the first public screening of a motion picture. 
Seven months earlier, Woodville Latham projected a boxing match, the Griffo Barrett fight. It was a film that he shot on the roof of Madison Square Gardens on May 4th, 1895. Woodville basically just converted an Edison kinescope into a projector, but he gave it one important modification, something that was still used more than a century later. It's known as the Latham Loop. What it is is creating a loop of film right before the film enters the projector. Now that doesn't sound like much, but without that loop, too much stress and tension would be put on the film. And the longer a film played, the more chance there was of the film breaking. So due to Woodville Latham's little idea, longer films could now be projected. But hey, we're here to talk about the Lumiere brothers. Auguste-Marie Louis-Nicolas Lumière was born on October 19, 1862 in Besançon, France. Their father, Antoine, had been a painter but moved into the new field of photography, eventually opening a small photographic studio in Lyon. It was in Lyon on June 6, 1848, that Louis-Jean Lumière was brought into the world. Now, the two brothers were very close, both bright intelligent, and inventive. Like while the family was on the Brittany coast in 1877, they built a portable laboratory in Darkroom, and this was while they were on vacation. Both Auguste and Louis attended the La Martiniere, the largest technical school in Lyon. Auguste received a diploma in chemistry, while Louis, at 16, earned top honors in math, drawing, and chemistry. But their father's business was struggling, almost on the verge of bankruptcy. But it was the genius of the brothers that saved the business. After Auguste returned from military service, the brothers took over and improved the business. They began creating machines to automate many of the processes and even invented a new photo plate called Etiquette Blue that would remain on the market for 80 years and make the Lumieres wealthy. Soon the company was the second largest photographic company in the world, just behind Eastman Kodak. At their peak, they produced about 15 million plates a year. They owned a large factory that employed many people. The family was doing great, living in a 30-room house and even owning a pleasure steamboat. And the brothers always remained devoted to one another, vowing as children that they would always work together and did so for most of their lives. That even moved into their personal lives. In 1893, Louis married Rose Winkler, and a few months later, Auguste married Rose's sister. In 1894, their father, Antoine, was invited to a showing of Thomas Edison's kinescope in Paris. He returned with a bit of film that was given to him, and he presented it to his sons, planning the idea in their heads about improvements to motion pictures. Eugene Molson, an employee of the business, recalled, It was in the summer of 1894. Antoine Lumiere entered my office where I was with Louis and he took out of his pocket a bit of kinescope film that he had gotten from Edison's agent and said to Louis, This is what you should make because Edison sells it at insane prices and his representatives are looking to make them here in France to have a better deal. For Edison, the idea of projection was something he wouldn't even consider. I mean, to him, there was more money in individual viewings than showing to many people at once. 
Auguste once commented, We observed, my brother and I, how interesting it would be if we could project on a screen and show before a whole gathering, animated scenes, faithfully reproducing objects and people in movement. It was in the winter of 1894 that the brothers began to work on their new film idea, and there was a bit of urgency as they knew others were working towards the same goal. Like Edison, they had an advantage over most others as they had, well, lots of money. In the beginning, it was Auguste that began to attempt to create a camera, but soon Louis took over, both, however, with little success. They started with acquiring the technology from Leon Boley. He had invented the Cinemagraph, a device that was able to shoot and project films. Boley's device had a lot of flaws. It was very primitive, using sensitive film without perforations, causing jerky movement as it moved through the camera's gate. The brothers knew that if they wanted to project watchable films, it would need a lot of improvement. Louis was plagued with migraine headaches his whole life, and he would often find it difficult to sleep at night. During one of those sleepless nights, while laying awake in bed, he came up with a solution. It was in those late hours that he thought of a sewing machine. A machine holds the fabric still while the needle and thread makes a stitch, then it advances the fabric to make the next one. He realized that the same principle could work with a movie camera. Two pins could incrementally advance the film by grabbing both sides using sprocket holes. Once it was in place, it would stay still long enough for the shutter to open and close, then the pins would advance the film to the next frame. Now, while similar ideas had already been used, the brothers made significant improvements. And while Edison's system used electric motors, the Lumieres used a hand crank. While this might seem a step backwards and might seem to cause problems with keeping a constant speed, it made the camera small and lighter and used less film. The camera could now be portable. And it was a three-in-one device. It could film, develop, and project the footage all from the same unit. The film the camera used was 35 millimeters wide, which became the standard for years to come. They patented it in February 1895. Auguste would always give total credit to Louis for the invention, but both names appeared on the patent. For their invention, they used the same name as Leon Boli, the cinemagraph, which means written movement. And that's where we get the word cinema from. One month later, they shot their first epic. Setting up outside the entrance to the Lumiere factory, they filmed employees leaving for the day. It was 46 seconds long. Some of their other films include titles like The Gardener, or some call it The Sprinkler Sprinkled, which may have been the first with a narrative, and perhaps the first comedy. The film portrays a simple practical joke in which a gardener is tormented by a young boy. The boy steps on the hose the gardener is using to water his plants, cutting off the water flow. When the gardener tilts the novel up to inspect it, the boy takes his foot off the hose, causing the water to spray in the gardener's face. There's the blacksmiths, which are just two men acting as blacksmiths, and I think they're played by the two brothers. Feeding the baby has Auguste and his wife and baby daughter having breakfast in the countryside and fishing for goldfish, in which Auguste holds his baby daughter on a table next to a bowl containing goldfish. 
In all, they made 10 films, and they were all about 50 seconds, more or less, I guess, depending how fast the crank on the projector was turned. Anyway, I've been talking way too long, and I need a break. I'm going to go have a cup of coffee. So while I'm doing that, why don't we listen to Nancy Fry and Nancy's Nandarines? Hello, everybody. I'm Nancy, and welcome to My Opinion Corner. Since this episode is about film history, and specifically the brothers at the turn of the last century who opened the gates to cinema as we know it, I thought I'd share a selection of narrative features whose plots involve early filmmaking. There are hundreds of films where the story revolves around more modern movie making, like The Big Picture, Bowfinger, or American Movie. But since we're talking about the early years, this list is going to be shorter. There are more films in this category than I'll talk about here, but I wanted to stay with films I've actually seen and think are worth a look. Probably the most famous film on this list is the 1952 classic Singing in the Rain. What's not to love about this Technicolor musical? with its great cast and songs now embedded in pop culture. If you've never seen it, and you call yourself a film buff, what have you been doing with your life? It's a typical boy-meets-girl, boy-loses-girl, boy-gets-girl-back before the end credits, but it's more than that. It's set in Hollywood's rocky transition from silent films to talkies, and it's pretty accurate about the sad fact that some of early film's big stars just didn't have the voice to make the change. It's just a good, good movie. Debbie Reynolds is spunky and charming, Gene Kelly is dashing, Donald O'Connor is athletically brilliant, and Gene Hagen is gloriously dim. A more recent film that I really loved is 2011's Hugo. The Lumiere brothers had invented the movies. It's a charming story about an orphan boy living in the clockworks of a Paris train station. I love its nostalgic, if slightly fantastical, look at narrative film pioneer George Méliès, played by Ben Kingsley. And there's even a mention of the Lumière brothers. I asked the Lumière brothers to sell me a camera, but they refused, you see. They were convinced the movies were only a passing fad and they saw no future in it, or so they said. In the end, I built my own camera. How dare you! How dare you destroy my photographer! You idiot! Did I kill some of your people, Marno? I can't remember. The very first film version of one of the first vampire tales is director F.W. Murnau's 1922 silent film Nosferatu. In 2000, E. Elias Merhige, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, directed Shadow of the Vampire, a fictional version of the making of Nosferatu. It's so well done that you might just be convinced that it's not entirely fiction and that, just maybe, Max Schreck wasn't merely acting a part as a creepy bloodsucker. The way the director blends reenacted scenes with footage from the original film is brilliant and seamless. It stars John Malkovich as Murnau and Willem Dafoe as the best Nosferatu since Max Schreck. If you like creepy, lurking horror and period dramas, you'll probably like this one. 
Revolución will be won. Another film, based on historical silent footage, but probably a lot closer to the truth, is the 2003 film and starring Pancho Villa as himself. Pancho Villa really did sign a contract with the Mutual Film Company to allow them to film the Battle of Ohinaga in 1914. Alas, the finished film is lost to history, although some still images remain. There are, however, some unedited reels of the battle showing Villa and his army fighting the Federales, so the makers of this later film had some decent reference material. Upon completion, the 1914 film was the first American feature-length film. The director, Frank Thayer, had to fight the studio over the runtime, as they were certain no audience would sit for a film longer than one hour. Thayer convinced Mutual to just double the usual price of admission to 10 cents, and history was made. This docudrama, starring Antonio Banderas, was the most expensive made-for-TV film to date at $30 million. It's a good story, a look at a moment in history, and a look at the perils of location filmmaking. He came to America with nothing but a dream. You can't be chaplain. You might be chaplain after all. You can't talk about silent films without talking about English actor and director Charles Spencer Chaplin. In 1992, Richard Attenborough directed the beautiful biopic Chaplin, starring Robert Downey Jr. It's a loving look at the man and myth that was Charlie Chaplin, with a fantastic supporting cast. I especially love Kevin Kline as Douglas Fairbanks. He just is Douglas Fairbanks, as far as I'm concerned. Mr. Neck. Mr. Neck is a film producer. How would you like to be in the movies? Oh, Seth, no! I take her too, but she's gloomy. 1995's Cold Comfort Farm, with little baby Kate Beckinsale in one of her best roles, as far as I'm concerned, isn't about the film industry. One of the brothers living at the titular farm, Seth Starkadder, played saucily by a smoldering Rufus Sewell, is obsessed with the moving pictures, however. Flora, our protagonist, dead set on improving the lives of everyone around her, manages to get him a film contract in one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. It's a funny period piece set in the 20s, and it's another one of those British films with a stellar cast that I go to for a pleasant diversion. Another honorable mention for films that aren't necessarily about making movies, but in which the early film industry figures, is 1991's The Rocketeer. Set on the eve of World War II, it's pure pulp adventure about a young pilot who stumbles onto some stolen government tech. How do I look? Like a hood ornament. Stand clear. What was that? It features a dishy Jennifer Connelly in one of her earliest film roles as an aspiring actress, and hunky Timothy Dalton as a Douglas Fairbanks-type movie star. It also has a musical score I adore, so it has that going for it. 
Heather Harper speaking. I'm talking from the bedroom of Norma Desmond. Don't bother with a rewrite, man. Take this direct. On the darker side, there's always Sunset Boulevard, the Billy Wilder creepy 1950 murder mystery about an aging screen queen who clings desperately to the fiction that she's still an ingenue with star power in an industry that has moved on without her. Used to be in silent pictures, used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Gloria Swanson is famous for this career-defining role, and she's given some of the most iconic lines in film history. As stated, it's a bit dark, but it's another take on that not-always-successful transition from silence to talkies. Last but not least, we'll end on a high, if bittersweet, note. I saw this film when I was just graduated from college, way back in the late 80s. I saw a trailer for it while at another movie and made sure to catch it when it hit one of the local art houses in Seattle's University District, where I was living at the time. It's 1988's Cinema Paradiso, a nostalgic look at film, including a lot of silent pictures, through the eyes of a little boy. The evocative small-town Italy setting, coupled with the romantic Ennio Morricone score, is guaranteed to have you reaching for the Kleenex. Seriously, I dare you not to sniffle at least once during this poignant coming-of-age story. And that's my list. See you again in a week! Thanks, Nancy. So many wonderful films you talked about. Singing in the Rain, Chaplin, Hugo, Shadow of a Vampire. I love them all. I've seen most of those. I haven't seen the Pancho Vila one or that last one you mentioned. I'll have to get on that. Anyway, back to my story. When you watch the most famous film of the brothers, the Lumiere workers leaving the Lumiere factory in Lyon, you may notice that there are different versions out there. It turns out that there are at least three versions, or at least three that exist today. They differ from one another in numerous ways. They are often referred to as the one-horse, the two-horse, or the no-horse versions. The clothing styles change too, and that seems to indicate that they were filmed at different times of the year. I wondered why. Were one of the brothers or both not satisfied with the first version? Did Louis watch the first film and say, It's good, but it's not great. We need to do it again. And after the second one, It's still not what I'm going for. One more time. Or perhaps I just wanted to shoot people at different times of the year. More likely, it was an easy place to set up an experiment. This film, as well as most of their films, are freely watchable and can be found all over the internet, including YouTube. For this film class, they are essential viewing. And they're in remarkably good shape considering their age. Some of Edison's shorts are hard to watch, jerky, grainy, with poor contrast and such. And I don't know if this is because the Lumieres had better equipment or if their films were just better preserved. 
That's the problem with a lot of early films, you know. Until home video began in, what, the 1980s or whatever, there was no market, really, for old films, so they were just left to rot. And and we lost so many in the process. But anyway. The brothers held a few private screenings of their films. One of these was for the French Photographic Society in Lyon. As a demonstration, the brothers made a film of the members getting off an excursion boat. Watching that film compared with the factory workers' film, it's sort of funny. The factory workers act as if the camera wasn't there. They never look towards the camera. They never look at it or acknowledge it. They just leave like they probably do every evening. But the members of the French Photographic Society always are looking towards the camera. Some stopping to make sure their face is seen. Others tip their hats towards the camera. But the reason why the brothers had these private exhibitions was to build excitement over their new invention. That led to their first public screening on December 28, 1895 at the Salon Indian D. Grand Café. And really quick here, I want to apologize to all my French listeners for any pronunciations that I do that are horrible. Anyway, this café was located on one of the busiest streets in Paris. And like I said at the beginning, this was not the first public screening, but it was the first public screening that charged admission. The cost of admission was one franc per person. Now I looked into it, and according to my calculations, one franc is equal to one U.S. dollar. Now using an inflation calculator I found on the internet, that equals to about $33 in today's money. And I'm sure there's something wrong with my math because that seems a little high to me, but I'm pretty sure they didn't charge $30 for popcorn and soda, the price I paid the last time I was at the theater. In fact, I don't think they served popcorn or snacks at all, but each audience member did receive a program. Their father, Antoine, helped organize the event. 33 people watched that first night, including Georges Méliès. Some people consider this evening the day the motion picture industry was born. And while the family might have been disappointed by the small turnout, that quickly changed. Soon there were long lines of people waiting to get in, with police being called to control the crowds. Within three weeks, they were bringing in 2,000 francs a day. And to keep things fresh, they constantly changed the films, adding their new masterpieces whenever one was ready. One of these films was the arrival of a train at La Ciotet Station. This short shows a train being pulled by a steam locomotive arriving into the train station of the French southern coastal town. There is an urban legend that the train moving directly towards the camera was said to have terrified spectators at the first screening, some running towards the door though this is probably not true. Most of their films were almost like home movies, like Feeding the Baby, but they were shot with a purpose. Most of the time, they were experimenting with exposures and such. Louis would often film the same action multiple times using different settings, and then picking the best one for public viewing. So after their great success, Auguste and Louis Lumiere took their show on the road, they visited cities like Brussels, Bombay, London, Montreal, New York City, Buenos Aires, and even Egypt. I found an advertisement in the Pittsburgh Press dated October 1st, 1896, and it reads, 
Europe's reigning sensation, Lumiere's Cinemagraph. Prices $0.10, $0.25, and $0.35. The original intent of the brothers was to sell and market their cameras, but that changed when they realized that there was big money in these public showings. Soon, the brothers themselves stopped shooting the films and instead hired cameramen to go out and create new epics. This worked well as their cameras had a huge advantage over Edison's as they were easily portable. They could be taken on the road without a problem. They could go into small towns, even without electricity, and still make a film. And when they arrived in a small town, they announced that they were there to make a moving picture, and the locals were filled with excitement. This was increased when the residents were told they could appear in the film. Imagine the publicity when these town folk knew that they were going to see themselves on the big screen. And it also convinced a lot of skeptics that there was no trickery going on. The cameramen that they hired invented new techniques. There's the story of one cameraman who put his camera on a moving boat. At first he thought he might get in trouble for doing so, but Louis was so impressed he encouraged other cameramen to try similar things. Of course, the biggest market for the brothers was in the United States. At one time, they had 22 cameramen in the U.S. One of those, Felix Meskich, commented, You had to have liked these moments of collective exaltation, having attended these thrilling screenings, in order to understand how far the excitement of these crowds could go. With a flick of a switch, I plunged several thousand spectators into darkness. Each scene passed, accompanied by tempestuous applause. After the sixth scene, I return the hall to light. The audience is shaking. Cries ring out, The Lumiere Brothers! The Lumiere Brothers! Their time in the U.S., however, was short-lived. In the USA at the time, President William McKinley began stressing an American-first attitude. After all, these foreigners were taking business away from the beloved Thomas Edison. Quickly, the public turned against him. They were accused of bringing cameras into the country illegally. Even Meskich was thrown in jail for filming illegally. By the summer of 1897, the crew headed back to France. By 1898, the brothers had accumulated over 1,400 films, most shot by their hard-working cameramen. Included in these films were forerunners of the newsreels, showing newsworthy events. But by about this time, the brothers' interest in film had begun to slow. One of the reasons may have been that by 1900, there were many other imitators doing the same thing, and they had no desire to compete. For the brothers, this was only one of their businesses, so I would guess that they just let it go. Their last major contribution came in 1900. They designed a giant screen for the Universal Exhibition in Paris. A few of their films were shown. Part of the reason the brothers may have given up the film business might have been that they didn't see much of a future in films. Earlier, Nancy Fry played a sound clip of Ben Kingsley as George's Mel Yes, and that line from the film was apparently true. George's was at one of the early screenings of their films and was so excited he approached Auguste to buy a camera. He later said, Lumiere would not listen to me. Young man, he said, you should be grateful since, although my invention is not for sale, it would undoubtedly ruin you. 
It can be exploited for a certain time as a scientific curiosity, but apart from that, it has no commercial future whatsoever. How could they have known that what they had done would last for over a hundred years, and eventually people would spend their precious minutes on Earth binge-watching countless television series? After they gave up film, Louis kept up his interest in photography, working on ways to create color and stereo photographs. Auguste lost all interest in photography and instead worked on innovations in the medical field. Louis died on June 6, 1948 at the age of 83 and Auguste on August 10, 1954. He was 91. But the most important contribution to the passion of Joan of Arc was the performance of French-born Renée Maria Falconetti, who usually went just by her last name. The former Boulevard Theater comedian, Falconetti gives what many consider the greatest single performance in screen history. Not silent screen history, screen history, period. A little bit before I go. Now, the brothers were not the first at, well, almost anything when it comes to film, yet they advanced the medium more than perhaps anyone else. Their techniques and business model were a breakthrough and an inspiration to many filmmakers to come. Within a couple of years after they began their work, many, many more people were doing the same thing, and, and that's how these things work. Like I said, one step leads to another. Two such people, of course, were Georges Melies and the subject of next month's history lesson, the remarkable Alice Guy Blachet. Alice was highly influenced by the brothers and became a French pioneer filmmaker who came to the United States and opened her own film studio. It's a very good story. Next week is the second Monday of the month, and we're going to look at another one of Jeff's favorite films. We're going to talk about the French silent historical film, The Passion of Joan of Arc, a film by Carl Theodore Dreyer. This film is based on the actual records of the trial of Joan of Arc. Now listen up. We have a Facebook page. You need to join it. I would love to read your comments. The page is called Celluloid Days. Please come in, join us there, leave comments. You can also follow me on Twitter. On Twitter, it's at Celluloid underscore Days. Though I have to admit, I haven't been posting a lot on my Twitter account. I need to get to that. And you know, I'm always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. I want to make the third Monday of the month a film I've never seen before. You can leave the recommendations on Facebook, Twitter, or send it to my email address, daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid all being one word. Hey, you can even email me just to say hi. I'll say hi back. One last thing. If you could find a few seconds in your day to go onto the place where you download this podcast or stream this podcast and leave me a review, hopefully a good one, I'd appreciate it. Um, I'd be forever grateful, you know. I want to thank you for listening. Thank you to Nancy Fry for your contribution to the show. And I'll be back next Monday with something thrilling. The Passion of Joan of Arc. Thanks for listening. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? 
The cuckoo clock. Two Dallas multipass. Multi-pass. Lena, uh, multi-pass. You know it's multi-pass. You're a stupid mind. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing. 